Others look at um, the increased capabilities of South Korea as an asset and, um, you know, great asset in fulfilling the bilateral security treaty and defense commitments um, against against, uh, North Korean threats. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Chris Park, a graduate student at Johns Hopkins SICE. South Korea is an emerging player in the global arms market at a time when the demand for military equipment is rising around the world. South Korean defense exports are expected to reach $10 billion in 2022, nearly tripling the figure from 2020. Will K-Defense emerge as a major item in an already long list of Korean exports that include K-Beauty products, K-Semiconductors, and of course, K-Pop? Dr. Daniel Pinkston joins me on the podcast to discuss the South Korean defense industry. Dr. Pinkston is a lecturer in international relations at Troy University. Previously, he was a Northeast Asia Deputy Project Director for the International Crisis Group in Seoul, South Korea, and the Director of the East Asia Nonproliferation Program at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Dr. Pinkston, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start our discussion of South Korea's defense industry with the KF-21 fighter jets that recently completed a successful maiden flight test. How did South South Korea develop this plane, the so-called 4.5 gen fighter jet? And how significant is this achievement? Yes, great questions. It is a a significant achievement and very uh, difficult and long-term project. It was first envisioned uh, back in 2001 when uh, Kim Dae-jung gave a speech. Uh, And then in 2002, uh, the ROC Joint Chiefs of Staff set up an R&D plan. And then the project had been ongoing for some time. There were a lot of doubts because it was considered very ambitious, Um, but it's similar to uh, many other big industrial projects that um, South Korea had embarked upon in the past, so it tracked with some of that, and that initially because of the, uh, you know, significant sunk investment and the large economies of scale that are required to uh, recover the investment costs and and, uh, development costs, you know, there were doubts, but then in uh, 2010, with the North Korean attacks, uh, sinking of the Chonan, the rock naval vessel, and the artillery attacks, I think there was a, you know, motivation or, or incentive to um, step up the, the program, and uh, they reinvigorated um, the the project, and they uh, concluded an agreement with um, Indonesia, Indonesian uh, aerospace firm, so they've been a, a partner in this as well. So finally, after 20 years, this is kind of coming to fruition, but there still are years of um, testing. And I don't think they're going to deploy uh, that airframe until about 2026. And then between 2026, 2032 or so, I think they plan on deploying about 120 of them to the South Korean Air Force. 
So it is a, a long-term, very ambitious and expensive uh, project. Right. And this, of course, the plane, you know, it's just the latest iteration in the South Korean growth and other areas of the arms industry, you know, <clears throat> producing ships, submarines, um, tanks, surface-to-air missiles, and a host of other, you know, defense articles. You mentioned the 2010 sinking of the Chunan naval ship and the acute security threats South Korea faces from the north. So I'm wondering, what are kind of the political drivers of these developments? Are they specifically focused on addressing security threats coming from North Korea? Well, South Korea is in a somewhat tough neighborhood, I would say. It's been pretty stable um, for decades now. Um, deterrence is robust, but there's the, the threat of... Uh, escalation in uh, conflict and escalation in, in the background. So, um, you know, there are incentives to maintain uh, self-defense posture and to nurture um, South Korean defense industries. So there's the, um, you know, regional security environment. And then South Korea has a mutual defense treaty, mutual security treaty with the United States. They have a an alliance that has been... Um, you know, in place since the Korean War, and it was formalized with the treaty in 1953. So the U.S. maintains um, forces here in South Korea, about 28,500 active duty personnel, mostly uh, Air Force and Army. And so South Korea, you know, the, the alliance is a fundamental, um, uh, you know, principle of the South Korean uh, security posture. But of course, in an alliance relationship, there's always the, the fear of abandonment or entrapment. And South Korea and the U.S. have gone through those periods over the past you know, 70 years or so since the Korean War. And initially, in the first couple of decades, South Korea was very uh, dependent or completely dependent upon um, assistance from the United States. And uh, grants and uh, military uh, transfers to South Korea. But then in the late 60s, as um, you know, threats and so-called provocations or armed attacks, infiltrations by um, North Korea, the security situation was um, deteriorating. And at that time, of course, the U.S. was embroiled in the war in Vietnam and the so-called Nixon Doctrine or Guam Doctrine as uh, Nixon administration was drawing down from the Vietnam War. They also uh, withdrew the 7th Division from uh, U.S. Army 7th Division from South Korea. So this shocked um, South Korea. And at that time, around 1970, uh, President Park Chung-hee initiated um, a number of uh, programs, uh, the Yulgok program or project to strengthen self-defense and self-defense industries actually started a missile program and nuclear program, and the nuclear program was abandoned uh, later under great pressure from the U.S. And then, um, you know, going forward, Korea, South Korea continued to um, nurture its defense industries, and they, they used the template, a kind of template that they used in other industries, in the heavy and chemical uh, industries, in the big push for that uh, industrialization in those sectors in the 70s which have um, 
you know, dual use applications or their foundations for your defense industri- industries as well. You steel, shipbuilding, um, you know, vehicles, automotives, um, uh, electronics, semiconductors, those types of things. So the, the problem for South Korea is that it's a relatively small market. And so many critics at that time felt that these um, projects would fail because of the huge investment and the economies of scale they would need to achieve to uh, be economically um, feasible and sustainable. So uh, Korea shifted from an import substitution program to an export-led program. So it's kind of in the industrial culture and in the policy and uh, having this long history of uh, swiftly moving to export orientation and increasing uh, market size and sales revenue. So that's been a foundation of uh, South Korean industry for, for decades now. You know, it also underpins the defense industry. So some of these uh, weapon systems we see, especially a fighter uh, project like this KF-21, uh, very, very expensive. I think it was over $6 billion, about $6.5 billion or so uh, R&D costs for this um, system, for this fighter. So to make that economically uh, feasible, it makes sense to uh, look to export markets and sell these airframes abroad. And uh, that's what uh, South Korea is doing. And they're doing that with other, with other weapon systems as well. So we'll get um, we'll get to discussing kind of the export oriented uh, f- vision of South Korean ar- arms industry. But before we do that, I do wonder if, you know, so much of U.S. or South Korean defense is undergirded, as you said, by the U.S.-South Korea alliance. And, you know, oftentimes that came into conflict with um, abandonment fears and desire for a self-sufficient defense posture. But I do wonder how much of these developments, you know, fighter jets, missiles, um, howitzers, how much of these developments are products of indigenous, fully indigenous South Korean technological development? Or does the South Korean arms industry still rely on foreign and especially American technology for its development? Well, of course, that's a great question. And, and the right answer for those types of questions always is it depends, right? So um, I guess we could look at different weapon systems and see uh, how much is indigenously uh, produced, developed and produced. South Korea has long experience in uh, producing small arms, for example. Um, Those are much more uh, simple. But I think any um, defense manufacturer, defense contractor, even the most advanced ones, you know, Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Thales in uh, Europe or, um, you know, European uh, defense contractors, um, you know, uh, Israel Aerospace Industries and others, Italian defense contractors, um, even, uh, you know, an F-22 or F-35 that the U.S. Uh, produces, I doubt that 100% of all of the components, all of the materials, everything is domestically produced. And for some uh, pieces and components and parts, it wouldn't make sense to, right? It would make more sense to um, procure them from um, other suppliers if it's uh, economically feasible to do so. But uh, on the cutting edge 
the cutting edge technologies and the very sophisticated components, the avionics, some of the sophisticated um, uh, electronic systems, um, optical systems and those things. Um, those technologies are more sensitive and the defense firms and the uh, countries, different countries uh, with their export control laws and so forth are much more reluctant to uh, transfer those technologies or they need an export license. So depending upon the nature of the relationship and the U.S. has um, laws that uh, manage or regulate uh, arms sales and so forth. And, and Korea is one of the, I guess it's the most uh, um, lenient, you know, the uh, NATO allies and Canada and so forth. Australia have these, um, you know, relatively uh, less uh, rigorous controls and constraints. But nevertheless, there are some sensitive technologies that firms want to um, protect. So um, sometimes it's simple and it's more kind of cooperative or a sales revenue issue um, where different firms might sell or, or collaborate on certain components or parts of a weapon system, uh, join a partnership. For example, the KF-21, um, you know, they formed a partnership with uh, Indonesia. So they're working on some of that together. Um, other things are more uh, sensitive and they won't transfer. So I know on the KF-21, there was something, the avionics, this special uh, radar, they wanted to get this radar from the U.S. and the U.S. Ref refused to transfer that because of the sensitivities. And uh, South Korea developed it uh, themselves indigenously, you know, at a much greater cost and a longer timeline. So they had a little bit of heartburn about it. Um, so sometimes it just it just depends. Um, and of course, for self sufficiency, uh, South Korea and others, of course, other countries want to have a firm independent, uh, indigenous, self-reliant um, defense um, industry to uh, supply arms and weapon systems in case of a crisis or conflict or a war. Um, so they have to balance that because, you know, South Korea is a kind of as a medium-sized country or mid-sized country. And um, so that's something they have to uh, work with and, and uh, balance as they continue to try to move up the technology ladder. Right. But, you know, whatever the path to achieve domestic production levels, be it, you know, cooperative development or in the case of more sensitive technologies, um, like the radars you mentioned, uh, fully indigenously developing those technologies, it costs a lot of money. And um, the answer for South Korea, as you said, was to look towards uh, exporting these defense articles it is now capable of producing whether entirely by its own means or through cooperation with other countries like the United States. And, you know, South Korea is emerging as a major global arms exporter with um, exports expected to surpass 10 billion this year from what I know. Uh, Poland uh, recently signed the $15 billion deal to buy tanks, fighters, um, howitzers from South Korea on the sidelines of the NATO summit, which was the first time a South Korean president was invited to attend at the NATO summit, although not as a NATO member. But, you know, Poland is not alone. And, you know, South Korea's entered defense uh, markets of countries like Australia, the United Arab Emirates. 
So my question is then, um, you know, it makes sense for South Korea to sell these weapons, to subsidize its own domestic arms industry uh, to help it keep funding. But why are countries buying weapons from South Korea? Are there particular weapons that South Korea is good at making and selling? I think so. I think they're finding a market um, niche. And for some countries that are, I guess, behind the technology curve of, of South Korea, um, some of the weapon systems are uh, high quality and less cost. They might not be the, the top of the line. So, you know, you mentioned the the fighter, the KF-21. Uh, it's uh, the South Koreans are aiming for a market um, where the unit cost is lower, say, than an F-22 or F-35, you know, or a fifth generation or coming up, you know, sixth generation new fighters. So, um for some uh, buyers, that's an attractive option. Also, um, I think I was looking at some figures, and, and recently the uh, greatest buyer was the Philippines, for example. So, if you look at the if we look at the conflict areas and areas where um, there's instability or potential instability, and what the um, importers, arms importers. Um, you know, the threat environment and their perception of the threat environment, what kind of systems they might be interested in. You know, you mentioned Poland. So things like uh, combat vehicles and um, uh, howitzers and artillery, those types of things um, would be applicable in, um, you know, Eastern Europe as we um, observe things uh, ongoing in the shadow of the war in Ukraine. So, um, you know, there's an opportunity there for South Korean arms exporters to move into that market because of the demand. And then on the uh, Philippines, the South China Sea side, right? Um, you know, on this side of the world, um, you know, maritime security, so ships, uh, surface ships, um, uh, aircraft for air patrols and uh, air defense systems, those types of things as uh, countries are concerned with uh, Chinese possible expansion in the South China Sea. So, um, you know, depending on the threat environment, and what the demand is, uh, maybe South Korea is just, you know, falling in the right place at the right time for these defense contractors, uh, right, where there's a stimulated demand because of the uh, instability, potential instability in, in certain parts of the world. And so certainly they'll uh, capitalize on that if they can. So we've discussed how... Uh, economic motivators are driving South Korea to look to external markets to sell uh, its domestically produced defense articles. Um, but I, I do wonder because, you know, selling, you know, weapons is different than selling some of the commercial items that South Korea has so excelled in selling over the last few decades. So I do wonder if, you know, there is a driving strategy behind where South Korea is selling, how South Korea is selling. Um, are they s supporting a particular geopolitical cause by, by, through these arms sales? Or is it purely motivated primarily um, by economics uh, and trying to subsidize its domestic arms industry and strategically just focus inwardly just on the North Korean threat with these weapons? Well, I think there are opportunities for partnerships. And many of these weapon systems are either you know, du dual use technologies, or they have dual use applications. So for example, um, satellites and space launch capabilities, 
have uh, dual use uh, applications, um, nuclear technology, other electronics, computing uh, power, um, unmanned aerial vehicles, um, unmanned underwater vehicles, new autonomous um, vehicles for that can be used for commercial purposes, for transport logistics, um, but also for surveillance, can be used for monitoring the environment or agricultural locations and things like that, or also for military applications. So a lot of these things can, uh, it just depends how you apply or you use the technology. So some of those uh, technology is very sophisticated. There's a big uh, race to, um, you know, to gain a first mover advantage to move into the, the market and to apply these uh, robotics, AI, you know, computation power, big data sets, surveillance, optics, all of those types of things um, where it takes innovation. And most importantly, you need the human resources, the scientists and engineers to uh, develop those new technologies or to acquire them. And if you, they're, they're acquired through a licensing agreement or bought um, or sometimes through industrial espionage, stolen or whatever, um, they have to be integrated into uh, systems and whether that's uh, weapons or some kind of uh, commercial application, um, you know, that's a long-term uh, project and project goals that South Korean, South Korean uh, firms have. So if you look at some of the defense firms, the aerospace firms, um, and some of the other uh, defense firms, you will see that they have uh, civilian applications or com commercial applications as well. So they're looking to... Um, apply and exploit the opportunities, uh, whether it's commercial, uh, looking at commercial markets for civilian use or for military and strategic use. So developing those relationships uh, with different governments, whether it's Poland or Indonesia or the Philippines, um, and concluding these arms agreements, cooperative agreements or sales, um, you know, there can be spinoffs or other opportunities that... Um, end up being uh, connected to that. So making the contacts both in the government and in um, with uh, firms in those other countries, uh, you know, that can open up uh, business opportunities, both on the civilian side and, civilian side and on the uh, defense side. Just what you mentioned about new opportunities for cooperation that build upon, you know, perhaps arms agreements, uh, you know, bring reminds me of what the UN administration has been saying uh, from the beginning about its strategy or uh, vision of becoming or making South Korea become a global pivotal state. Um, has the Yoon government made any clear suggestions about how South Korean defense industry will play into that strategy of becoming a global pivotal state? Well, I'm not uh, briefed or, or informed on the details or nuances of that um, policy or administration's policy on that. But I think um, it's natural to think, and I'm making some assumptions here, that they would try to exploit that. And I think going forward, because of the instability we see in the, the world these days uh, and the complexity of the security challenges, there are strong incentives to uh, cooperate against some of these transboundary um, you know, security challenges, whether it's traditional security or non-traditional security. You know, climate change, this resurgence 
resurgence of authoritarianism. Um, you know, we see what Russia is doing in uh, Ukraine. We see concentration of power in uh, Xi Jinping in uh, China, and usually under dictatorships, there's a higher risk of um, miscalculation, misperception, and, and potential dangers. So we see, uh, you know, China. It's uh, and Xi's vision of the international system and of the South China Sea and Taiwan and so forth. Um, you know, North Korean nuclear threat. And then there are these kind of unanticipated uh, challenges that might arise like COVID and, um, you know, climate change, these types of things. So no single actor can um, resolve these types of problems. And uh, South Korea is a middle power, has a number of incentives to form uh, partnerships. Even the greatest powers in the system, uh, you know, look to form uh, collaborative relationships and partnerships. Um, so we could see uh, ad hoc kind of um, partnerships emerge. You know, AUKUS is, is one, for example, that was an unanticipated, came out of nowhere. Um, we see stronger incentives for uh, Japan and South Korea and the U.S. to um, make greater, greater efforts at trilateral cooperation, despite all of the historical legacy and, um, you know, heartburn over the history between uh, Japan and South Korea during the colonial period. But in some of these uh, domains where there are increasingly uh, acute challenges or possibility of instability in cyber, um, outer space, space security, um, you know, the maritime domain in East Asia, these are problematic areas that um, will require uh, cooperation in the exploitation of new technologies, new systems, whether that's um, surveillance, uh, monitoring, you know, weapon systems for deterrence and, and other uh, purposes for dealing with the deteriorating uh, security environment. So um, it's going to be a complex future going ahead. So I wanted to conclude our discussion today by returning to our initial point, talking about U.S.-South Korea defense relations, defense alliance that dates back many decades and forged through the Korean War. Um, you know, the United States is a longtime ally of South Korea, the world's top arms exporter, Korea's top um, uh, uh, destination for its defense articles. How has the United States responded to the development of South Korea's arms industry? And how, how will South Korea's future growth or projected growth affect the U.S.-South Korea military alliance? Well, of course, it, it depends who you, you talk to, right? Um, for some defense contractors, if it's certain types of systems, maybe the market is uh, big enough and there's no concern or there's uh, opportunity for partnership. Um, in other cases, the emergence of uh, South Korea might be uh, you know, strong competitor to an American defense firm. So they might look at this as um, um, you know, kind of threat in the marketplace or the possibility of losing market share to South Korea. Um, others look at um, the increased capabilities of South Korea as a, an asset and, um, you know, great asset in fulfilling the bilateral security treaty and defense commitments um, against, South, against uh, North Korean threats. 
And one thing people need to remember is that the the bilateral security treaty signed back in 1953 uh, between the U.S. and South Korea, uh, at that time, South Korea was a you know, complete consumer of um, security and U.S. was providing uh, weapons and assistance and forward deployed forces and so forth um, to assist South Korea. But it's a mutual defense treaty. So if the U.S. comes under attack, uh, South Korea has a treaty obligation to assist the U.S. Now, back in the 1950s or 60s, that wasn't even really thought of because uh, South Korea didn't have the capability. Um, but as South Korea is more capable, um, you know, much greater uh, military capabilities, uh, you know, South Korea can step in and provide um, assistance or to rebuild um, lost capabilities. For example, in cyber attacks or if there's, um, you know, space assets are down, um, South Korea having these kinds of um, advanced defense capabilities, they can step in and uh, assist the U.S. uh, going forward. So most people, I think, in the thinking of um, strategy, people in the Pentagon and so forth, just looking at what uh, allies and partners can bring to the table and the aggregation of uh, resources and capabilities um, is an asset for the U.S. overall. So I think they would look at it in a positive way. And then if you looked at different um, defense firms or particular defense firms, depending upon the nature of the weapon system and everything else, some of them might look at some of the developments in a you know as a uh, potential uh, challenge, and others as uh, opportunities. So. Uh, as South Korea acquires uh, more sophisticated systems, they might uh, procure some of the inputs from U.S. firms, for example, or European firms. So um, it depends. I think you have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Pinkston, for joining us on a discussion on a newly emerging issue on South Korea. It's great. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.